Luke 9, starting at verse 18, the passage says, while he was praying in private, he meeting Jesus, and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds stand? They answered, John the Baptist, the others, Elijah. Still, the ancient prophets has come back. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. But he strictly warned and instructed them to tell this to no one, saying, it is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised the third day. This is the word of God. You can take your seat. I ask that you join me for another moment of prayer. Our Father in heaven, it brings us great joy this morning that we get to call you that. You are our Father who sits enthroned in heaven, sustaining the place that you and your grace and kindness to us will one day usher us into. So we rejoice in that today. And we rejoice that you've sent Christ as a Messiah to make this possible, to grant us the sure hope of it being experienced someday. We rejoice as we consider your unique anointing, your unique sending of him so that we might follow him through this life, through death into new life in heaven with you. We're grateful that we've got a Messiah who's proven himself to be so. He did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And we rejoice in his name this morning. And Father, it's my prayer that as I attempt to preach end of bolstering our joy in our great Messiah, that you would give the empowerment that's needed. I humbly admit that I'm fully dependent upon you this morning, Father. It is you who takes your word and embeds it into the hearts of your people. So I pray and ask that you use me as a mouthpiece toward that end. And I rejoice in my own heart this morning as I consider the Messiah that I personally have in Christ. And while I invite my brothers and sisters to rejoice in him, and while I invite those who may not look to him as Messiah just yet to, to repent of their sins and, and follow him as so, God, I pray and ask that all of our hearts would be filled with joy, that our, our minds would be filled with greater knowledge of who Jesus is, that our affections would be stirred in light of all of this. Your word makes clear that we've got a sufficient Savior in Christ. So we thank you for him. We pray this for your glory. We pray this in his name. And I both pray and preach with dependence upon your Holy Spirit. Amen. Life is filled with important questions. We all know this. This is why from the very early parts of a child's life, we start to instill into them 
that the ability to answer questions is an important ability to have. Uh, We catechize and train them to answer questions like, how old are you? What is your name? What are your parents' names? Where do you live? What what is your phone number? when, When is your birthday? We train children to be able to answer these questions because questions are important. And we continue to see the importance of questions and the answers by which we respond, even as we age, right? We grow from childhood and our mind starts to be filled with questions such as, what do I want to do for a living? Where will I go to college? Do I desire to marry? Who will I marry? Where will I live? All of these questions play large roles in the trajectory of our lives. And some might suggest that life with all these complexities is actually nothing more than the sum of the answers we give to these questions. But I want to offer a rebuttal to that suggestion this morning. You see, I want to suggest this morning that life is actually summed up by the singular, the singular answer we give to the singular most important question that will ever be asked. And that question, friends, is the question that today's passage confronts us with. Who do you say Jesus is? This is a question that everyone ever will have to give an answer to someday, not only with their lips, but also with the testimonies of their lives. Everyone will have to answer this question about who Jesus is. And this is why Jesus poses the question to his disciples. He asks them who the crowd say he is and who they say he is. But it is more than just a mere interrogation or act of curiosity when Jesus presents this question to the apostles. When he presents this question, friends, he knows that he's presenting the question that theirs and everyone else's life and eternity will hang on. He intends for there to be a certain weight and, and gravitas to be felt by this question. And I think that we must also feel the same weight and gravitas when we come to this passage. This question, friends, is the question of all questions. It's the question that everyone who lives and dies will be asked and must give an answer to. There's no escaping it or getting around the question that this passage presents. And so as we work through this passage today, I want us all to keep the question at the forefront of our minds. Who do you say Jesus is? There's no sermon outline. There's no bullet points for this morning because that's what I want us to focus on for the next 30 minutes. That singular question and the answer that our lives give to it. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? Uh, The scene that Luke paints for us in verse 18 helps us to feel some of the weight that comes with this question. He tells us that Jesus is praying. Uh, This is coming off the heels of the passage we looked at last week when when Jesus feeds 5,000 people with two fish and five loaves of bread. Uh, The other gospel accounts tell us that that there was probably more ministry that took place between that miracle and this conversation he's now having with his his disciples. And so at this point in time, all of that ministry, after, after all of that ministry, Jesus retreats for a time of prayer. I know you probably heard it said before, every time a passage shows us Jesus praying, it seems that the preacher wants to make the same point from that passage, right? But every time a passage shows us Jesus praying, friends, the point bears worth of being made again. That if Jesus himself, God in human flesh, fit and need to pray, then who are we to think that we don't have to pray? Who are we to think we don't have to pray if Christ himself and a prayer? And so here I am this morning, before I get too far into the rest of the sermon, I want to make that same old preacher point. Jesus here is praying, friends. And because we see this in our Savior, I hope there's no one in the room who can say prayer lightly. 
It's because Jesus himself saw it as a necessity as he walked in on earth. And so we as human beings who don't have the divine capabilities that he had, we must also see it as a necessity. Jesus is praying in the passage and we must also pray and go throughout life. Uh, this is why we take prayer so seriously as a church, by the way. You might've picked up on it this morning, but you come to any of our gatherings and you will hear several prayers be voiced. We've got a Wednesday night gathering that, that happens twice a month that is primarily for the sake of prayer. And it's not just because we like to take time and hear ourselves speak. It's because we feel honored and, and, and we, we consider it a privilege that God himself is willing to hear us speak. It's because God's word commands us numerous times to, to pray and let it be known that he is a God with power to hear and answer prayers. It's because we truly believe that prayer is a gift from God, which enables his people to access the throne of heaven. And it's a gift that is not to be wasted. And if nothing else, we pray because our savior modeled for us what it looks like to live the human life to perfection. According to passages like these, he himself also prayed. So we pray. We pray together and we pray for one another. Rejoice as God answers our prayers and we rejoice even when the, the the answers to prayers don't look the way that we hope for. We see prayer, friends, as a God-given gift and device that adds clarity and joy and humility and worship and love for others and love from others and thanksgiving and holiness. It adds all of these Christian virtues to our lives. So we Christians take up prayer as the gift that it is. It would have been really easy for us to just kind of scroll past these forceful words in the passage and not give quality consideration to that reminder. But that would have been a disservice for me to allow us to do that. So there's a reminder this morning. Seek to be faithful in prayer as our Savior is faithful in prayer. But it's not just that he's praying that I want us to make note of. I think it's also worth considering why or what he might be praying. Especially in Luke's gospel. You see, in Luke's gospel, there seems to be this pattern where when Luke writes about Jesus praying, there's something special or significant that he's wanting us to see. Thus far, he's told us that Jesus prayed at his baptism and before he called and, and, and set apart the 12 apostles. And last week we saw him pray right before he, he broke that bread and fed those thousands of people. These were, were all significant times in the life and ministry of Jesus. And as we continue working throughout this book, we'll see that Jesus continues to pray significant times. He prayed before the transfiguration when he showed three of the apostles the greatest glimpse of his glorified state that anybody will see on, while he's on earth. He prayed when he taught his disciples how to pray with the Lord's Prayer. He prayed when he gathered with them to serve the Lord's Supper. He prayed for Peter that, that God would sustain his faith beyond the time of him denying Jesus with his words. He prayed right before the Roman guards came to arrest him. He prayed as he hung on the cross during his crucifixion. And Luke tells us that he's praying here. Now we can assume that Jesus prayed a lot more than what we see recorded in the Gospels. But when Luke tells us that he's praying, we want to ask ourselves a question. Why is Luke telling us this? And I think the answer goes back to what I said earlier about the weight of what's happening here. This is a significant event due to the weight of this conversation. Jesus asks this weighty question, and when an accurate answer is given, he responds with the weighty details of, of what, to ha what was to happen to him in the coming days. Who do you say that I am? You're the Messiah, Jesus. Yes, now, let me tell you how I'm going to fulfill my messianic purpose. Friends, the reason this is a big deal is because thus far, Jesus has been being viewed in all the wrong ways. 
You see the answer given in verse 19, right? When, when, when he asked his disciples what the crowds are saying about him, some people are saying that he's John the Baptist resurrected. Uh, others are saying that he's Elijah resurrected. Others are saying that he's some other ancient prophet who's come back. They don't know who he is, but they, 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 they assume that he must be one of the old prophets who has just come back to life. Like very few people are expecting that he actually is the savior who all those other prophets to. They know he's been outperforming miracles and, and he's becoming popular as a preacher. So he's respected as a prophet, but very few people are looking to him in the way that he's actually to be looked to. And then even those who do think that he's the Messiah, they're likely thinking about him as a, a kind of messianic politician. So they think that he's come to, to save his ethnic people by building this militia and going to earthly war on Rome. Well, we see Jesus begin to correct that thinking here when he poses this question. He lays this truth on his disciples. It's the first time that this truth has been shared to the extent that he shares it. Like this is the very first time that he explicitly says, I am the Messiah has come to endure persecution and death and the eyes for the salvation of mankind. So I speculate, friends, but this being the first time that he makes that explicitly known, I speculate that he's praying that with the unveiling of this truth, his disciples will be made wise to receive it. And I think this should still be one of the primary prayers among the people of God today. God, give us grace to understand more and more of your truth. God, if we're going to be the carriers of your truth in this day and age, give us grace to have an in-depth understanding of what your truth is. And I think we should also be praying, God, give us grace to understand how your truth is the singular, exclusive truth in the world. I mean, do y'all notice the, the exclusivity of the scene painted in 15? Luke uses this weird for us. It says, while Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, we read that in sermon lab this week and Elizabeth was like, well, wait, <laughs> like, so is he alone or are or, or his disciples with him? The answer is both. Exactly. Yes. But what Luke shows us by telling us that he was alone with his disciples is that they, the privy to this exclusive information of this conversation. So Jesus pulled this, this small group aside away from the crowds and he was exclusively teaching them the detailed truth about him and his purpose so that they would then have detailed understanding of this truth and see how it, it as truth towers above any other lie that tries to masquerade as truth in its place. Like it wasn't so they'd be ignorant of the other statements, like the disciples were able to give an answer when Jesus asked what the crowds were saying. But his exclusive instruction of them was for them to know the difference between their answers and that of the crowds. Uh, some of you may have heard me say this before, but when fraud detectives were being trained for uh, the detection of, of real money bills versus fake money bills, they don't spend a, a whole lot of time looking at fake bills. What they do is they devote so much time, an excessive amount of time, to examining the real thing so that whenever something fake is put before them, the differences from the real thing are just evidently and, 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 and obvious before and friends, it seems that when Jesus pulls his disciples aside and gives them this exclusive insight into the gospel, he's building into them a kind of instructive knowledge and detection of what's real so they can stand against what's fake. And God's methods haven't changed much, beloved. There's still an exclusive group who is to know the truth of the gospel. And that group is, is to collectively gather with Jesus for the sake of their growing in their understanding of the gospel. And then they're to take that detailed understanding and devote themselves to guarding and propagating those details against any lie that tries to stand in its place. That group is called the church. 
that gathering looks, looks a lot like the one that you're sitting in right now. So praise God that you're here. That might grow our understanding and our conviction and our affections and our burdens to see this gospel truth be upheld as a singular truth, which brings about salvation. At the church continue, friends, standing for truth in a world that is filled with fallacy and misunderstanding. Jesus says the crowds are going to say, with, but you, my people, there's truth that you've got to stand for. The crowds may say one thing, but who do you, my people, who do you say that I am? Peter's the one who actually speaks up and answers the question. <laughs> you see, Peter's a disciple who uh, many of us are probably a lot like. But when we read about him, we've probably self-righteous to convince ourselves that we're nothing like him. You see, Peter's a disciple who, who we find it easy to identify with whenever we're going to be honest with ourselves. He, he, he's, he's depicted as one who speaks out of turn and, and is often the origin of some bad idea or some unhelpful conversation. I heard a preacher the other day say that Peter's the one who invented the uh, concealed carry permit. <laughs> like, like Peter kept, y'all know what I'm talking about. Let's so say he kept his blade close and, and if push came to shove, he was ready to pull it and, and, and do all the slicing that needed to be done. So he was also a man, let me get back to my notes. He's also a man who acted out of turn. Peter was super well intended but he was an imperfect sinner and he sometimes got ahead of himself. And friends, the reason I appreciate the fact that it was Peter who spoke up and gave this profession is because in the very irony of this being Peter who speaks this truth first, we learn a lesson about what the profession actually is. You see, Peter was an imperfect man and he made some mistakes along the way and he had a track record that wasn't all clean. He still comes to grips with the truth of who Jesus was and he stakes his life upon that truth. You see, by the end, Life. He's, he's preaching this truth to others and, and he's writing this truth in letters to strengthen churches. And, and what we ultimately remember Peter for is how he devoted himself to seeing that this very truth, which he professed, would, would be shared with others and become the truth that they themselves would also profess. So Pete wasn't a perfect man, but he was a man who truly believed that Jesus Christ was God's Messiah. And you see, with him being the one who makes the profession, there's an implicit suggestion that the profession is not about perfection. So hear me say that, beloved. God doesn't want a perfect from us. He knows we can't get that. That's why he, Christ Jesus, to provide it for us. What God wants from us is a life that is clearly marked by the belief that Jesus is God's Messiah, who's perfect in all the ways that we could never be. What God wants, friends, is a genuine, honest, heartfelt profession that Jesus is the Messiah. The reason I stress this profession needing to be one that is genuine and heartfelt is because if we aren't careful, we can trick ourselves into thinking that the word say is to be taken only at its face value. You see, when Jesus asked them who they say he is, I don't think he only has a verbal statement in mind. I think he has in mind the statement that is made by one's life. Romans 10 now makes it clear for us. If you profess with your mouth and believe in your heart. So there's this verbal profession that's necessary, but along with the verbal statement, there must be this, this kind of belief in heart about who Jesus is. And you see, when a belief is truly heartfelt, when we genuinely wholeheartedly believe something, it changes the way we act, friends. Jesus himself makes the point in Matthew chapter 5 that the heart's means for communication, the, the words that the heart speaks are the actions of one's life. So with our actions, we speak just as loud, if not louder than we do with our words. So we may say one thing with our mouths, but the way we respond when angry also makes a statement about who we believe Jesus is. We may say one thing with our words, but, 
but the way we steward our time and money is as loud and as clear a statement about who Jesus is. Our tongues may, may give a certain utterance, but, but the way we handle trying times also utters a belief. We may say that we believe Jesus is the Messiah who saves us from sin, but the way we respond when we're convicted of sin indicates whether we truly believe that or not. You see, friends, when we stand before God on the final day, we're not only given account for what we verbally stated about Jesus, but we'll also give an account for what our lives have said about him. And one of the primary problems among mankind is that we've got a bunch of people who make verbal statements about Jesus, but their lives can contradict what their mouths say. And here's the thing, the life always speaks louder than mouth. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say he is with your mouth? But who do you really say he is with your life? Pete's answer was that he's the Messiah. That's the only correct answer to be given. Uh, Peter answers with his mouth here, and then he goes on to, to give the correct answer with his life. But Peter's choice of words here, he says a whole lot without saying much at all. Who is Jesus, Peter? God's Messiah. With two words from the English vocabulary, Peter preaches a whole sermon. Jesus is God's Messiah, or in some translations, the Christ of God. You see, friends, when, when, when Peter responds in this particular way, he makes a multifaceted statement. It's first a statement about himself, like to say that Jesus was the Messiah was to say that a Messiah or a, a Savior was actually needed. So with this statement, Peter is humbly acknowledging that, that he and others can't save themselves. He's, he's acknowledging that there is, is actually a need for a Messianic Savior. By saying that it was Jesus, he was acknowledging that he wasn't his own Savior. So that's, that's a place that we all have to come to if we're going to make the correct profession about who Jesus is. We should learn from Peter's example here. He is what we need, but we are not for ourselves. But in this, in this same breath, Peter is actually making a multifaceted statement about God in heaven and Christ, God in human flesh. You see, he uses a possessive to answer the question. So Jesus isn't just a Messiah or the Messiah, but he is God's Messiah. He isn't just the Christ, but he is the Christ of God. And that, my friends, it takes this good news and it makes it gooder. I know that's not a word, but, but the incorrect English carries the correct emphasis. This news of Jesus being the Messiah becomes more grander provided God. False religions that, 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 that have just kind of tell the people just kind of waking up and, and, and deciding to declare themselves as some kind of Messiah one day. But Jesus is different, friends. So he's different in that he comes with God's of approval. There's only one Messiah who was supernaturally born of original conception. There's only one Messiah who had angels to tell his parents that he should be named Savior. There's only one Messiah who had the company of shepherds and wise men be led by God to meet him in his first days. There's only been one who at his baptism had a dove to descend on him and the audible voice of God say to him, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. There's never been another friend who stood perfectly strong against Satan in a wilderness of temptation for 40 days and then had God himself commissioned angels from heaven to see that his strength be restored in the end. God has done this in the life of one. And all of these acts from God, all of these stamps of approval in the early part of Jesus' life history, they were statements from God. Jesus was no self-proclaimed Messiah, but he was his Messiah. He was the one that he had sent to save his people. He wasn't just Messiah, but he was Messiah of God. 
Which brings us to the next indication of Peter's statement. Not only does he, his answer state something about himself, not only does it state something about God in heaven, but his answer also makes a declaration about Jesus. So what does it mean that Jesus is God's Messiah? Well, the word Messiah, I've said a few times already, it means anointed one or sent one. And this is during a day in which God's people had been waiting for him to, to send the anointed one. And now because there had been nearly uh, 400 years of silence where no prophet had said anything about how the Messiah would eventually come, there had been 400 years of reflection and reviewing what had been previously said about the Messiah. So Peter and his people had probably spent time reviewing Genesis 3 when when God initially made the promise of a Messiah and and assured Adam and Eve that that there would be one to come and, and strike the head of the serpent. I imagine they spent time reviewing the prophetic statement of Genesis 49 that the scepter would apart from his people, that the ruler's staff would always be with them. Or surely they considered Psalm 2, right, which, which spoke of an anointed son who would eventually show up and overthrow the evil nations. I'm sure they were anticipating this everlasting ruler with the everlasting scepter, the everlasting throne. Or maybe they were thinking about how he was surely coming to be perfect, without blemish. Maybe they'd given extensive thought to the temple rituals that they knew of and, and how they were required to use male animals with no spots or blemishes for their sacrifices. Maybe they started to understand that this was symbolic of the perfect, spotless lamb that the Messiah would be. Or maybe they had had thought about the thing that he would do. And they started to to grow an excitement about the powerful truth that he would come to proclaim. Maybe it stemmed from the knowledge of Psalm 40 and how it speaks of one who doesn't seal his lips, but makes proclamation of saving acts in the assembly of his people. Or maybe they were like me. And they got excited at the thought that the Messiah would come to unite people from all nations. Maybe the promise of Isaiah 42 that tells of this Messiah redeeming even Gentiles and bringing justice to the nations. Like maybe that promise filled their their hearts with hope for foreigners. Friends, surely Peter's people mentally rehearsed all of these things over the last 400 years. Surely they rehearsed them and and taught their children about all of these Old Testament promises that God had made to eventually send the Messiah for the salvation of the world. And so when Peter says that Jesus is God's Messiah, Peter is saying, I believe you're all of that. Peter's saying, I believe you're all that I heard about. He's saying everybody else may say that you're just a prophet like John the Baptist or Elijah. And, and, and while those answers are flattering to most, I believe you're more than a prophet, Jesus. I believe you're the one who everyone else prophesied about. And so hear this, friends. Peter's statement here isn't one of mere admiration or even of respect. Peter's statement with those two words is a statement of worship. He's saying, you're the one who's here to take this hope we've clung to for so long and make it a reality. You're the one, Jesus, who has come as light amidst darkness. He's saying, you're the one who comes to eternally redeem your people from sin and all of its effects. And I I, want to encourage all of us in the room today, friends, if you've not made the same statement yet, let today be the day that you say, Jesus is God's Messiah. Admiration of him enough Beg for him enough that you say with your mouth and your life that Jesus is the Savior who was anointed for the very foundations of the world to save you from your sin. He makes this profession that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus tells the details of how his messianic purpose would be fulfilled. He first warns Peter that he wasn't to go and proclaim this to the world just yet. This was because the world wasn't ready for this truth yet. Now they would try to, to, to force him to to, to rule by their own plans and, 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 and to act by their own timelines for what they thought the Messiah should do. So Jesus says, the time hasn't come for the world to know yet, 
But let me tell you, disciples, what the messianic mission looks like from point forward. What he first tells is of the great difficulty he'll have to endure to fulfill this mission. He says he's going to suffer and be rejected and be killed. And he says that all of that taking place is necessary. That's a strong word. I mean, have you ever considered that it was a necessity for Jesus to endure all that he did in order to save us? Have you ever considered why it was a necessity that he endure it all? There's a few reasons that suffering and rejection and death was necessary for Jesus to endure for our salvation. The first is that it was a fulfilled prophecy. I just listed a, a number of things from the Old Testament that tell us about the triumph the Messiah would have. But there were also a number of prophecies that told about the trials he would endure. It was said that he would, would save by becoming a suffering servant. We just read a passage that makes that clear for us this morning. He would come and suffer for his people. And so he eventually did. And here he tells Peter about the suffering that was. Another reason it was necessary for Jesus the trials he did is because the trials are meant to provide us with a clear picture of how heinous sin is. Like the extent to which Jesus suffered in his crucifixion, friends, is the worst one could suffer. I've heard it said that, that the very word crucifixion was, was almost like an explicit word that people didn't say uh, during the first century because of all of the, the gruesome, uh, murderous tales and everything that was associated with it. Jesus endured all of that as a necessity for our salvation. His suffering and the brutal extent of it is meant to show us the damnable, destructive, deadening extent of sin's effects in the world. He suffered greatly to redeem creation because sin had greatly tainted creation. And the third reason it was necessary for Jesus to endure all the trials he did is because he was leading the way through it for us. See, God's word tells us that Jesus is the firstborn of creation, the firstborn among brethren, and the firstborn from the dead. This means that he leads the way for mankind to follow him into life, through the trials of life, into a second life that will be absent of trials. He suffered and endured suffering to empathize with us when we suffer and to lead us through it. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that he's a great high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weakness. And he's in all weakness perfectly so that he can lead us through it with his strength, friends. So when you face of your own, rejoice that you get to walk behind Christ. You face rejection from others and feel as though you're unwanted. Know that you're in good company with Christ. When you're confronted with the grim reality of death, know that he who was confronted with it and endured it for us, he walks alongside you in the confrontation. And after you come to know all of this, don't forget to consider that he who endured suffering, endured rejection, and even endured death, passed through it to resurrection. I said at the beginning of our time together that death is both the greatest heartache we're all sure to be confronted with, but it's also the one that's most involved in what Christ has done. These last four words of verse 22 are what makes this resolution clear. After Christ endured all that he did, he was also raised the day. He beat death, friends. This proves that he's the Messiah, and it provides all, all who say that he is, with an unfading hope. You again today. Who do you say Jesus is? Let's pray. Jesus, you are the Messiah. 
who was sent to fulfill the messianic mission and do for us what we can't do for ourselves. You were sent to hand us eternal redemption and the hope of life after death. You were sent to, to hand us hope amidst suffering. You were sent to hand us reassurance and security amidst rejection. Because you were sent to hand us supernatural resuscitation after death. So we rejoice in you, our Lord. And I pray that our hearts would joyfully proclaim this truth that you are the Messiah. Or we proclaim it to ourselves when we need the reminder. And might we proclaim it to others so that all may have the chance to know. We love you, Lord. We pray this in the name of your son. Amen.